0: Luke chapter 24, verse 44 to 49. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Well, let me add my welcome uh, to Mark's. Uh, let me welcome especially uh, those that might be joining us on the live stream um, as we come to this um, passage and think about this theme, our our mission statement, as Mark has introduced. So let me pray for us that uh, God will help us as we engage with something that may seem familiar that we might be challenged afresh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can freely gather tonight. Uh, We thank you that Uh, even on a hot day as it's been, that we can uh, join together in this cooler room to hear your word and to respond in prayer and praise. And we ask that you might help us now uh, to hear your voice clearly in Scripture, that we might uh, respond rightly, help us to see our part in your great purposes for this world. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, each year, um, for over 15 years, at about this time, as Mark was mentioning, uh, we look at our mission statement, which is emblazoned on the wall as you come in, and we want to reflect and reset for the year ahead. But perhaps you're thinking, well, you know, if you've been here for some time, I've heard this before, I know what the, the slogan is, uh, is there any point in hearing this again and revisiting? Why is it important to reset our minds on such a statement at the top of the year, as it were? Well, let me convince you firstly why it's important before we look at this passage and see its connection to our mission statement. Firstly, it's really important because mission drift can happen in churches just as it can in any organisation. For example, did you know that Harvard University's founding purpose was to prepare ministers of upright character? That's right. Harvard University started as a Bible college. It was called Harvard College when it started in 1636. It's the number one university in the United States. It's often ranked number one in the world. But Harvard has long since moved away from its founding purpose, even though it's located in the same place that it began in. The mission of Harvard today Uh, is to educate the citizens and citizen leaders of our society. We do this through our commitment to the transformative power of a liberal arts and science education. You might be asking, what happened to the transformative power of the gospel? Well, they've long since shifted to that. Where did that go? Well, mission drift. They've just moved away from what their roots were. And as a church, we don't want to move away from our mission statement not because it's a good statement that can't be changed or that a thousand other churches have or don't have, but because we believe it's biblical, that it's a summary of great truths from the Bible that all local churches should be about, whether it's their mission statement or not. We believe it's based on God's unchanging purpose for it, and so we need to revisit it each year so that we might think more deeply about what it is that we're committed to collectively and how we might play a part in that as an individual. But secondly, you can know what a mission statement is or our one, but not really know how to pursue it, perhaps not really be invested in wanting to pursue it, how to play your part as a member of our community. Knowing something is not the same as really owning it, is it, of giving our energy to it. Unless our mission statement is biblical, it's not worth the paper it's written on. But it's also not worth anything if it doesn't permeate our culture as a church, if we don't actually live by it, if it doesn't determine the ministries we do and flow into every area of our community's life. Our elders and our other leaders in the life of our church, just we don't want you to be okay with the mission statement. We really want you to give yourself to it and pursue it as we serve together in 2023. And so the big question that I want us to consider tonight is this. What is the mission of the church and how do we pursue it in 2023? What is the mission of the church and how are we to pursue it this year? We're going to have a look at that short passage at the end of Luke 24 to answer that question now. So answer to the first part of that question, what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to proclaim the gospel and make disciples of all nations. So have a look again with me at Luke 24, just verses 44 to 47. Here is Jesus addressing his disciples after his resurrection, immediately before his ascension, his return to heaven. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So this is Luke's equivalent of the Great Commission that we find at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28. And I don't know if you, if it struck you as you heard those words, perhaps again for the hundredth time, but it's striking here that Jesus emphasizes that this plan, this great commission that he has for his followers, actually finds its roots in the Old Testament. God's plan begins way back. It's not a new thing that Jesus is suddenly introducing with his advent. Both the good news of Jesus and the spreading of that news is grounded, he says, in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, that reference there is a reference to the threefold division of the Old Testament. That's how Jews understood the whole Old Testament to be captured. And so Jesus is saying that proclaiming God's salvation through the Messiah has always been the Father's agenda. The whole of Scripture has a mission theme. Side by side with the four servant passages, for example, in Isaiah 40 to 55, We not only have these great descriptions predicting the Messiah who would come and the suffering that he would undergo, but with it is also that this great message will be proclaimed, that God's people are to send it out to the nations. So, for example, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, we read this, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And again in Isaiah 66 verse 19 we read, I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survive to the nations that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations." Now, as we hear those words from Isaiah, so many centuries before Christ's arrival, we then immediately reflect that the nation of Israel often failed at this charter that they'd been given by God. They weren't always a clear light to the nations. They didn't always proclaim the gospel message or the hope of salvation and a Messiah that was to come. But, of course, when Jesus finally came, He became the true light that Israel had always meant to be. As Jesus proclaimed the gospel, he said, I am the light of the world. He became also the true Israel. And we've seen that over the last few weeks, actually, as we've looked at the first few chapters of Matthew, that where Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And so, Israel were tested in the wilderness for 40 years, but they turned their backs on God and did not follow his commands and did not trust in him. Jesus is tested in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan, but he overcomes as he uses God's word to rebuke Satan and to stand firm on the promises of God. And so Jesus, the true light, the true Israel, announces here in Luke 24 to his disciples, the first followers, their collective role – that they are to be a witness, that they are to proclaim this good news and that it comes in the context of the whole Bible. This is not a new thing that he places upon them, but rather it's the culmination. You see, the Great Commission is the logical summary. It's the natural overflow of the character of God, a God who desires to gather a people to himself that are for his praise and glory. And so not only does the Great Commission begin in the Old Testament, but therefore, to make, to know, and to make Christ known is a gospel imperative that flows through all the Bible. That is, the gospel is not just a statement of fact of things that happened, that Jesus died, that he rose on the third day. That is true, and we get a summary of that here in Luke 24. But Jesus, notice, emphasizes here in this passage that it's a message that then must be delivered that it's a message that is to be proclaimed, that is it's not just left on a shelf. And so this concise summary of the gospel here in Luke 24 is to go out to all the nations. Jesus says repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in my name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so it's helpful to reflect as we have tried to encapsulate that in the summary of knowing Christ and then making him known, whether that's something that shapes our lives. As we look ahead to the year 2023 and all that might be before us over the next 11 months, we're almost at the end already, aren't we, of the first month, what is it that we're aiming to do? Is that shaping what our focus is as a person, collectively as a congregation? A good test of whether we actually are growing in our knowledge of Christ is whether we are making him known. See, if we've come to know this wonderful salvation, all that Christ has done for us as we trust in him, then our maturity, our understanding and growth will mean that we must share that with others because we want them to experience the same wonderful salvation that we ourselves have received. And Luke, as he records Jesus' words here, gives us two key terms. It's just a gospel summary. It doesn't say all that might be said about the gospel and how we might explain it and unpack it to a person. But did you notice the two key terms here, repentance and forgiveness, that Luke records of Jesus' words. So it's worth thinking for a moment, okay, these are two key things that must be explained as I outline the gospel. If I have an opportunity this year to make him known to a friend, family member, neighbor, work colleague, have I understood these terms myself that I might deliver the good news clearly. Firstly, repentance. Uh, it's a word in the Greek which is metanoia, which just means change of mind. And in the context of the gospel, it's to change my mind from being a self ruler, where I sit on the throne and decide how I'll run my life, to allowing Jesus to come onto the throne of my life and to let him be the king, to submit to him as the one who's in charge. The appropriate response when I realize that I've been running life my own way and in rebellion rejecting God and saying, no thanks, I don't need you, I'm going to do it my way, is to turn away from that and repent, to acknowledge my rebellion against God and to get off Christ's rightful throne and allow him to take his seat in our lives. I don't know if you saw the movie a few years ago, The King's Speech. Uh, I went and saw it with my wife, Christine, in 2011 when it came out. It tells the story of King George VI and how he came to the throne in England in 1936 because his older brother had abdicated. But the movie, of course, focuses on George VI's stammer, the fact that he has a speech impediment and the the stress that caused him in the role he was about to take on where he needed to speak to the people and instruct the nation. And, of course, uh, in the movie he um, brings on board an Australian, an unqualified Australian, um, played by Geoffrey Rush, uh, Lionel Logue, who is a speech therapist and is going to help him uh, come to grips with these big moments that he's going to have to speak in front of the nation, the first of which is really his coronation. So there's this wonderful scene um, in Westminster Abbey uh, where they're trying to practise for his coronation, Lionel Logue's sort of running him through some drills, and at one point, King George uh, turns away, and while he's got his back to Lionel Logue, Lionel sits down in the king's throne. Um, King George turns around, and he's less than calm. Get up, he says. You can't sit there. Get up. Why, says Logue, in the, I guess, laconic way of Australian, it's just a chair. Why not? It's not just a chair. That's St. Edward's chair. People have carved their name in it, he said. Does it matter? Get up, listen to me, listen to me, King George bellows out. Because the idea of taking it upon yourself to take on the king's role, to sit in the throne uninvited when it's reserved for the person who has truly got the authority and the right to sit there is the height of arrogance. It's the height of offense. But, of course, that's what we do when we sit on the throne of our life and boot Jesus out of it and say, we'll take it from here, thanks. We don't need you. It's at that point that we realize our offense against God. This is the heart of sin. It's our rebellion, our rejection of the rightful ruler in our life. And all the wrong things we do from day to day are just outworkings of that basic rejection of God. And when we understand that offense, we want to repent of it. If we've truly understood what God should rightfully be doing in our life, then we're to turn away from that old pattern and turn to him. But there's a second key term here, forgiveness. It's a key term in Luke's gospel. It'll be a key term in his second volume, Acts, as the fledgling church starts and they take on this commission that Jesus has given them and they proclaim the gospel. They tell people to repent, but they tell of the forgiveness that can be received. Through Jesus. How? Well, it doesn't get unpacked for us here, but it's through Christ's atoning death and his resurrection. We learn of his suffering here, as Luke summarizes Jesus' words, and his resurrection on the third day. It's through Christ's payment that there can be forgiveness. It's one thing to know you've done the wrong thing, but it's another thing to be forgiven, to be received back by the one you've offended. And so often in our world, when we ruin a relationship with someone, we want to earn our way back, right? If I do some nice things, if I make it up to them by doing X, Y, or Z, then maybe they'll receive me back. And so often we apply that kind of approach to relationship with God and think that somehow we can earn our way back into his good books. But the Bible's very clear that we can't do that. There's nothing we can do to make up for our sin. Rather, we need to come to the one who can forgive us. So Jesus bears our sin, our rejection, so that we might be offered forgiveness. And the wonderful news to proclaim is that there is forgiveness for those who set aside their efforts and they come to the one who has paid for their debt. It's worth reflecting on, isn't it? Is that central to your understanding of the good news are those elements there as you share the good news with someone, perhaps as you'll have opportunity later in this year? Forgiveness is an important theme. It's a heartfelt need of a lot of people in our world today, and it's a theme that cuts across lots of cultural barriers as well. There's a story um, back in 1977 of an American missionary Uh, writer George Peters and he went to India and he interviewed the famous Indian evangelist Bhakt Singh. If you haven't heard of this guy, he was like the Billy Graham of India throughout the 20th century. He lived almost all of that century. He would have conferences and crusades where tens of thousands of people would come to hear him explain the gospel. He trained leaders. He planted churches. The effects that he has had on that country will not be known until eternity. And so he went to interview him and said, well, what's your approach as you share the gospel in your native land? Do you talk to them about the love of God? He said, no, no, I don't talk to them about the love of God. When you use that term, people just think about their own love life. No, no, I don't speak about that. Well, do you speak about the wrath of God and his judgment and sin? No, no, all the Hindu gods are angry. Having one more God that's angry and is going to judge them means nothing to them. No, that's not my emphasis. Well, what then? Do you speak about eternal life of you know the promise of something beyond this life? No, no, I don't speak about this. If I use those terms, the Indian just thinks about reincarnation. What's your message then? Well, he said, Well, I have never yet failed to get a hearing if I talk to them about forgiveness of sins and peace and rest in your heart. Soon they asked me, How can I get it? How can I get this? And having won their hearing, I lead them on to the savior who alone can meet their deepest needs. Was well, that something of how you approach it as you chat to people? He thought about the context in which he was sharing. We'll have to think about that in our context here in Australia. But what we do have to be committed to is the mission of the church being to proclaim Christ and make disciples. And to do that, we've got to be knowing Christ ourselves. We've got to be growing and maturing as believers so that we can hold out the word of life and talk about repentance and forgiveness. And so our church's statement is to know Christ and to make him known. And as we think about the task that we've been commissioned for, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. If that's how you're feeling, um, I'm with you. And we begin to think, well, i I don't feel equipped to do it. It's such a, a mammoth commission. Well, notice Jesus' words that are encouragement in verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. You see, God's message requires God's power. Christ promised his first disciples who were witnesses of his death and his resurrection that they would be empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not mentioned here but is explained and unpacked in the second volume in Acts chapter 1 as Luke continues his account of what happened. But it's the promise of the Holy Spirit God's enabling so that we might be strengthened to share the message, that it's not us and our ability or our strength, but it's God. But even knowing that, it's it's important, isn't it, to be clear about our purpose as a church and our part in it as a follower of Jesus. Because otherwise we just won't invest our time and energy in what God wants us to invest our time and energy in. If you are a disciple here tonight, you're called to make more disciples to the glory of God. That's your great purpose in this life, to grow in your knowledge of Jesus and to share that with all you meet. And I think part of our problem as we think about that and we think about the overwhelming size of the task is that we're not always convinced that people really need to hear it. We struggle with how the cost might be for us and then we're perhaps not as convinced as we need to be that people are in desperate need, that they really are lost, that they're without purpose, without direction, that they need to know God's purpose for their life and for hours. But frankly, if you start chatting to a friend or a neighbor who's not a Christian, within five minutes you often find that there's a longing there for some real direction, some real purpose to their life. They sense an emptiness so often, a lack of real importance in what they're doing. Is this life all that I'm seeing where it's just messy and chaotic and there's suffering and what is the point of all that I'm doing? A few years ago, I read the book uh, Minefields, A Life in the News Game by Hugh Rimmington. Uh, no doubt you might have seen him a few years ago reading the news on Channel 10 or before that. He was a foreign correspondent on Channel 9. But he spent decades working as a journalist uh, all around the world. And, of course, his book is largely a connection, a collection of his interactions with world events as a reporter and his experiences through that. But all through his book, he's very clear that there was a sense of trying to find purpose. It was his own search for purpose that sort of drove him on in going to far-flung places and witnessing so many things. But he gets to one point in the book and he says, after witnessing lots of disasters and traumatic suffering both in Australia and overseas, he was with a man in Indonesia following an earthquake that had killed the man's wife and his two children and 7,000 other people. And as he sat sort of crying with him and reflecting on it, he said this, I had set out as a young man wanting to know about life on earth as a journalist. But after that moment with that man in Indonesia, I knew that there was nothing more I wanted to know about human suffering or loss. I'd chipped away at understanding for so long and now I had broken through, I felt, and there was no golden Buddha, there was no enlightenment, there was just a void, bottomless and black. It's a pretty tragic conclusion, isn't it? But when you take God out of the picture, it is a realistic conclusion. But it's a hopeless one. But if you're a believer here tonight, you don't believe that. You believe that your life has purpose because God has given it a purpose. It's not one you create. My own personal happiness or my comfort, my complacency, my career, these things are empty and passing. There's got to be something greater and God says, yes, there is. It is growing as a disciple of my son and making him known to everyone around you so that they might be drawn into his kingdom as well. And we've been commissioned as his ambassadors. That's our role on earth, to share the good news with everyone. And there are so many people in our world that are without hope. And they need to hear this. We've got to be convinced that they need to hear it. Which brings me to a second part. Second part of our big question. And that is, well, if these things are true, then how are we to pursue our mission this year? What will it look like in 2023 as we seek to fulfill our mission? Well, it can mean a whole number of things. But here are some big ones um, that we announced at our AGM last August. We want to develop more leaders. We want to strengthen our home groups. We want to cultivate in each person a heart for mission. And God willing, we want to plant a church as a result. Let me fill out that picture and paint it a bit further. What would that look like in this coming year? Well, firstly, God has blessed us as a church. He's blessed us with growth over this past year. We've needed to go back to two morning services that we commenced again uh, this morning, and that's a wonderful thing. God has done that. Um, but that means that we need to raise up more leaders. Part of our growth in our knowledge of Jesus is to actually put it into action by serving others so that I don't simply come as somebody who receives, but I also give because I will grow so much more as I do so. And so we need to raise up more leaders to serve in kids' church, on welcoming, hosting, doing suppers, and a thousand things beside. And so, look, let me encourage you. Let me challenge you tonight. Maybe you do some of those things and you've been doing them for years. or well, have you rethought as you approach this year? Is there something new that God might have me turn my hand to this year? If you've never been involved at that kind of level, let me encourage you to step forward and be involved. We'd love to chat to you about serving the body of Christ here. And there's far more uh, beyond our four walls. There are many other ways to serve Christ uh, beyond our gatherings on a Sunday, certainly. Secondly, we want to encourage our knowledge of the Lord Jesus by strengthening our home groups this year. Mark's already talked about the sign-up, which is tonight and then next week. We really want to strengthen our home groups. I don't know if you've worked it out already. I know many of you are in a home group, but it's the engine for our church. Uh, Sunday gathering is great. We need to gather as God's people and corporately worship Him. But just being here on a Sunday is not enough that you might be spurred on to really grow and serve as a believer. You need your brothers and sisters around you, challenging you, looking at the Bible with you, praying for you week after week, sitting with you as you go through the ups and downs of life that are going to come inevitably this year. You need your brothers and sisters and you need to do it on a smaller scale than you can do with 100 people on a Sunday night. So let me encourage you to commit yourself wholeheartedly, even if you've been in the group perhaps for the last five or ten years. Maybe it became a patchy thing for you last year. It was like, ah, oh, you know, I'm busy. Work's been a bit harder this year. My study's taken up. It's ramped up to the next level. I'll get there occasionally. Make it a greater commitment in your life that you might know Christ more so that you might then make him known all the more and share the gospel with others. So that's my third point. We've got to cultivate in ourselves God's heart for mission. We've got to see that the fields are white for harvest. We should actually long to put those convictions that we have about the truth of the gospel into action as we share our life with our friends and neighbours and work colleagues that are not believers, that we might invite them to a Christianity Explored course so they could think about the good news for themselves, that they might come to church and join you and hear more of what God has done for them. But to do that, we've got to cultivate that heart for mission. We've got to actually believe that and want that and to pray for that day after day, week after week. How good would it be if one of your good non-Christian friends became a believer this year? What if that happened for everyone in the room? Imagine a 100 new believers, the glory that would go to God through him working in their lives in that way. Why not pray to that end? We need to pray big, expect great things from our great God. We need a kingdom perspective as well. If we've got that heart for God's kingdom of seeing the lost one, then let me encourage you too to pray with our elders this year that God might raise up a church planter. We've been talking about doing a church plant down in Calderwood since 2018. We put it as part of our medium-term plans We're really hopeful that that might happen, that God might raise up somebody to lead that team this year. And that's not because we want to tick a box and say that we've planted the church somewhere, but because of the gospel conviction. There are 300,000 people in the Illawarra. What percentage of them are in church today? It's 3%. 3% of people in the Illawarra are in church today. There are tens of thousands of people that need to hear the gospel, perhaps again for the 10th time or for the first time. And planting churches have been seen to be a great way, especially in new suburbs, to create new communities that connect do a great job of bringing people under the sound of the gospel. And as a church, we're not even interested just in Wollongong, as important and as great as the needs are. We want to care for the needs all around the world, and so we're going to keep supporting our mission partners who are serving in Mozambique and Bangladesh and Albania and Thailand. In fact, we're hoping to send a team, a short-term mission team, to Thailand in July this year, God willing, that uh, Ken and Christy and others might lead a team uh, that goes and meets with Jasmine Ng and with Jit and Jan Yarwin who serve, that we partner with in mission. Maybe you could be praying about whether God might place that upon your heart this year. And as you think about the church plant, if you live to the south, whether you might be part of that, a core team that needs to be formed to go and start that church. Now, all those things are great plans. You can write all kinds of things down on a bit of paper, right? But for that vision of the future to actually become a reality, we've really got to be committed to our mission statement. We've got to believe it's God's mission that we make disciples of all nations. And we've got to turn our maybes into personal resolutions. If you've ever read Jonathan Edwards' 60 resolutions, know that you've only just begun if you've come up with two or three New Year resolutions He was ultimate in setting out all that he might commit himself to. I'm not asking you to come up with 60. I'm asking you to think about committing yourself to inviting that friend, being bolder this year, of committing yourself more to a home group, of stepping out and serving and becoming a leader in a new way. Just one more step from where you are at this point. I want to challenge you to turn those maybes into real resolutions that you're going to follow through on. Now, as I press in on that... Each of us turn on our mental accountant at that point. A lot of us hate accountants, but we're very good at it when we get to the point of deciding what it's going to cost us to make a step, right? So as you hear those things, you begin to think, well, you know, I'm I'm struggling to hold down my job or give enough time to my family or uh, work on this relationship or balance all these com- competing demands for my time. We start listing all the costs off If I'm to pursue God's mission, then that's going to be costly. Absolutely. Now, don't hear me saying that it's not important to balance your life or to worry about your family or to be a faithful worker at your job. Not at all. All those things are important. But God's mission in this world is certainly not less. Remember what's at stake here, people's eternity. The alternative picture to what I'm suggesting, is one where we pull back from God's mission. Maybe you set out for 2023 to be more comfortable this year, to do less, to just pursue your private goals rather than God's mission for your life, to come back, to shrink back from your commitment to Christ church. Well, it's that kind of thinking which is exactly where mission drift starts. You think, ah, oh, look, it won't matter. Ah, oh, Somebody else will do that this year. Ah, oh, look, they won't miss me if I don't turn up at home group for six months. It doesn't really matter if I don't give myself to that opportunity with that non-Christian friend that God keeps opening the door for. It doesn't sound right when we say it like that, does it? It's a mammoth task, I get it. There are eight billion people in the world right now. But rather than being overwhelmed, that should spur us on to pursue God's mission. Our problem, as I mentioned earlier, is we often don't think people want to listen, that our words will be weak. How can I share? Are they really going to hear it? There'll be too much cost. I'll just be rejected. But words are powerful. Coming back to the movie The King's Speech, there's a scene where King George VI is whinging about his lack of power. You ever heard of that, a king whinging? I've got no power. He says, if I'm a king, where's my power? Can I declare a war, form a government, levy a tax? No, and yet I'm the seat of all authority because they think that when I speak, I speak for them. The irony wasn't lost on him given his speech impediment. But surprisingly, he gave regular radio speeches during World War II which were comforting and encouraging and inspiring of the nation that kept things moving forward in a really difficult time for Britain. He actually was able to speak for them and to them. Words are powerful. How much more the gospel message, which is not about our rhetoric or our oratory skills but is about God's power at work, we shouldn't underestimate the gospel message. The apostle Paul states in Romans 1:16 that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. More than that, as we've seen in Luke chapter 24, we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're not doing it in our strength. It is God who enables his word to go forth, and it is God who produces the fruit. He will bring the change in your friend's life. It is not dependent upon you. His spirit will convict and change, but we are to be his instruments. We are to hold out the good news. So let me encourage you tonight to give yourself to God's mission this year. Our world always wants to tell us the lie that you'll find greater joy by just doing your own thing. It seems far less costly I'll just pursue my private goals and I'll feel good about things. Let me tell you, if you're a believer tonight, you'll only find true joy in this world if you pursue Christ's mission. It's only then that God will give you the joy that you're looking for. That is where true satisfaction is found in this world as we pursue what God has laid out for us to do. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus was so clear to his first disciples and by extension to us as his followers today, that we might be disciples who make disciples, that we might be growing so that we might make you known, that having received the wonder of your forgiveness, of having turned in repentance and come to faith in the Lord Jesus, that we too might share that hope that we have, that others may be drawn into your family as you work in their lives. Lord, help us not to shrink back this year, but to see your great mission, to see that it's our mission too. Help us, we pray. In Christ's name we ask. Amen.